peek behind the curtain of the Softly Training Lab with the Softly Performance Podcast. The pinnacle of human performance is out there, and we intend to find it. Welcome back to another episode of the Softleet Performance Podcast. This is Brooke, Softleet's lead registered dietitian nutritionist. That's a mouthful. Today I am joined by longtime Softleet friend, David Delanave. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Awesome. So how did you become this longtime Softleet friend? Tell the Uh, listeners, the people need to know. Well, I always brag about this and I think probably every time Brent rolls his eyes, but, um, so I was friends with Aaron and then I got to know Brent through, um, the hog hunts when I was going to those, when they were the silent warrior hog hunts. And then Brent reached out to me one day and he's like, Hey man, I'm thinking about starting this website called, I think at the time he wanted to call it soft athlete, but this guy owned the domain name and he wanted like, I don't know, like several thousand dollars for it or whatever. And I was like, dude, I don't even think that's that great of a name anyway. It's like a big mouthful, like soft athlete, right? Like you should call it softly. And I looked up the domain right away and I'm like, dude, the domain's available. It's a better name anyway. You should go with that. And he's like, all right, yeah, I might try that. And he just ran with it. And here we so, are. Yeah, exactly. But I came in from the fitness side. Um, Aaron and I did some some fitness stuff back in the day. Um, I own a gym in Minneapolis. Um, I'm... Uh, yeah, I'm kind of a fitness guy. I love seeing all your social media posts because you're much more than a fitness guy. You have all these interesting hobbies. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, uh, I enjoy doing a lot of things. Um, so I'm always kind of exploring different hobbies and creative stuff. Like like I probably what you're referring to is I just built a bed frame. I just moved into a new place and I'm like simultaneously um, trying to, I built a bed frame from scratch, just like welded the frame and everything and also finishing the basement. And I'm trying to get all of that done in essentially two weeks because I'm heading to Europe on Monday where I'm actually going to meet up with Aaron and a couple other friends of softly to do some, uh, mini motorcycle cross country riding. (laughs) That sounds so cool. I know everyone's excited for that. Yeah, it's going to be pretty rad. And you are here today to talk about one of your newest ventures, and all about olive oil. Yeah. Newest, newest and oldest. This is something that kind of goes way back for me. And like we talked, um, maybe a year ago or so about, um, sourdough bread. And it's funny, this is kind of a, it's a, in a way it's a tangent of that. It's like going back to like the roots and like the primary foods that are really important. Um, and yeah, this soft, this, um, olive oil thing kind of came out of being that, the hipster douchebag who, you know, people were like, well, where can I get good olive oil? And I'm like, uh, you can't <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, well, where do you get it? And I'm like, well, I order it from a friend, a family friend in Italy, you know, like just the worst possible answer. Right. I love it. So, um, years ago I, I started selling just a little bit of it at the gym because I would talk to people about olive oil at the gym and then, you know, we'd have that conversation and I I would feel terrible. And so eventually I just like ordered a few extra cases and I'd sell it at the gym. And because I moved away and whatnot, that hadn't happened for a while. And in January, a friend of mine reached out and they're like, Hey, I need some olive oil. Can I, can I get some from you? Like I'll pay you back. And I was like, you know, I actually don't have any right now. But I had just been to Italy in December and everyone in the region was talking about how good the harvest was this year. 
Um, it was a really, had some really bad years. Um, and maybe we can talk about that more later, but, um, this one was particularly good in terms of not only like the, the quantity of the harvest, but the quality. And I was like, you know, that's a good idea. I should, I'll order some, I'll get you some. And then I threw it out to my Instagram for pretty much anyone. Like, Hey, I, at first I said, if you're local to the twin cities, mm-hmm. you know, let me know if you want a bottle, just, just tell me you want a bottle and I'll order it for you. And I didn't even expect that interest to be what it was. It was crazy. Like it went from, Oh, I'll just keep track of the messages in my Instagram to, uh, I need a spreadsheet <laughs> and it just blew up. So it's been really cool. Um, and in a, in a way it makes sense because the product sells itself when people try it, especially side by side with whatever garbage they've been uh, using in their pantry, it immediately, they're like, yep, I need three more bottles. You know, it, you it truly does. You can definitely taste the difference when you have real high quality olive oil. But to me, what was fascinating, and I know I reached out to you recently about this, was why the grocery store olive oil tastes just, why does it taste so bad? Yeah. So, so this, if you're interested in this, I highly, highly recommend the book Extra Virginity by Thomas Mueller. Um, He's kind of the guy who like cracked this open, maybe... Uh, probably 20 years ago now. Um, And essentially there's massive fraud in olive oil. Um, It's a product that can carry a really high price tag. And it's kind of like selling like oregano and shake to high school kids. Like they don't, or middle (laughs) school kids, like not that I would ever do that, but they don't know what they're buying. Right. And most people don't know what olive oil should taste like. So if you sell them some canola oil blended with some chlorophyll to color it and some like flavoring additive, and and they're extremely technical in the fraud, um, most people aren't going to know the difference, right? Like it's it's a it's a crime you can easily get away with because there's no one to detect it. Um, and the profits. This is a quote from Thomas Mueller's book, but the profits have been compared to cocaine trafficking. That's crazy. Right? So you can take a bottle of canola oil that you pay, or they use um, hazelnut oil a lot for some reason, which is actually kind of interesting because if you have a nut allergy, you could be triggering that allergy. Oh, that's scary. Yeah, it's super scary, actually. I, I hadn't thought about this until I talked to a mom whose kid had pretty, like, like pretty serious nut allergies. And she's like, oh my God, I cook with olive oil all the time. Like, how do I know I'm not getting a nut oil? And I'm like, well, <laughs> you don't unless, you know, you trust your source. So anyway, they can take a, a bottle that costs pennies and they can mark it up not tens of times, but hundreds of times, you know, you can sell a bottle of olive oil for $60. So the profit margin on the fraud is absolutely enormous. And in the U S there's no enforcement. I mean, even in Italy, they take it pretty seriously and they enforce it. But in the U S like once it hits our shores, no one, no one's looking into it. No, it kind of is what it is. Yeah. Wasn't this tied somehow to crime? Like there was actually almost like an olive oil mafia of some kind. For for sure. For sure. And you know, they arrest people all the time in Italy, like at any given time. That's kind of what I told you when you had reached out. I'm like, if you just Google olive oil fraud at any given time, there's an article about the Italian police, like arresting, you know, some company or something. Um, when I was there last, I was talking to a chef who had worked in Germany and he's like, you know, I got to admit I was, I was buying from this, this big German restaurant supplier and 
I kind of knew that it was too cheap, but the olive oil was just so, so, so cheap that, you know, in the restaurant business, you're always trying to cut food costs. He's like, I couldn't resist. Like I, I kept buying this stuff. And then I opened the newspaper one day and they had been indicted on, you know, hundred counts of fraud. Turns out they were bringing in olive oil, uh, doctored olive oil from Italy. That wasn't actually olive oil, um, by the tanker full and selling it in Germany. That's wild. <laughs> it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, and you know, they're super technical about it. There's not, there aren't good ways to like chemically analyze olive oil to determine that it's authentic. So it's not just like you dip a little strip in it and you're like, Oh, this is fake. You know, there's, it requires a lot of chemical analysis. And one of the ways is actually just a sensory panel. Like they literally have people who are professional tasters taste it. And so like the definition for extra virgin, this is kind of interesting, means that it has to be defect free. So that means if it has even one defect, let's say it tastes rancid or it tastes musty or it tastes um, uh, metallic, even one, it's not extra virgin anymore. It doesn't matter what the bottle says. It's not. And mm -hmm. I'll go to a fancy food store and try their sample bottles of olive oil and like half of them will be defective. They'll be rancid or they'll be fusty or musty. Like there's, there's defects there that make it definitely not extra virgin, even if it was originally extra virgin olive oil. So do um, they do these sensory panels? Like let's say it's manufactured in Italy. Are they doing these sensory panels, labeling it as extra virgin, and then it's going to make the journey and hit the shelves you know, it, it happens in a lot of different ways. Um, one of the, the big tricks is to buy cheap oils, maybe even olive oil from uh, Greece or Tunisia or northern, you know, other places in northern Africa. And then they ship it through Italy and that then it then it becomes Italian olive oil. Of course, none of this ah. is strictly legal, but there are ways around it, you know, so they can say produced in Italy, even if it's not you know, the provenance is an Italian and then they doctor it there or cut it or whatever. And then they ship it to the U S um, there's all kinds of different ways to do the tricks. And now because there's been more scrutiny, a lot of times on a bottle, you'll see something like it'll say Mediterranean blend olive oil. And if you don't look carefully, you don't notice that extra virgin is missing. And that can mean that it's can mean anything like Mediterranean olive oil doesn't mean a goddamn thing legally right? Mm -hmm. Extra virgin does, virgin does. And then below that in Italy, um, the grade below that is called lampante. And it literally means the only thing it can be sold for is like lamp oil or industrial uses. That's funny. Yeah. So like Italians will joke, like this oil is, oh, this is terrible. It's lampante, but they're not joking. They're serious. Like that's, that's what it's good for is pouring into a lamp and burning it. I remember you posted something of the color, showing the color difference in the oils. And you're like, they totally forgot to add chlorophyll in that, this batch. <laughs> yeah, it was really bad. And in fairness, like this is a interesting point. You actually can't tell a lot about the quality of the oil from the color. You can have really good oils that are kind of yellow and you can have really good oils that are like a deep emerald green. But when you have two batches like side by side that are supposed to be the same thing and they're wildly different colors, that's something's going on there. Like the difference in color would come from different types of olives, you know, like let's say 
central Italian oil tends to be very green and rich and kind of emeraldy. Northern and northwestern Italian, like kind of up in the like the top of the boot, tends to be a little bit lighter and more yellow because of the olives that they grow there. Um, but yeah, if you have two batches in the roughly the same bottle and the color's different, there's something going on. And obviously there's nutritional differences. If you're being sold something that's more of a vegetable or a canola, uh, I'm really scared now of the food allergies that you're, you were talking about that could even be at risk if you're actually consuming a nut oil. Yeah. Right. So that's, I think what was crazy about the whole thing. So this was uncovered over 20 years ago, essentially. And how, like, how is it still going on? What's the story there? They can't really get a handle on it. I think that it's just a big, it's a big business and it's kind of, like I said, like a low risk compared to something like drug trafficking, where obviously there's a lot of heat on that. Um, American consumers, unfortunately, are not very discerning when it comes to olive oil. Um, and, you know, and then there's the problem of cheap is cheap. And like, okay, so I always explain, I when I had my dogs, I, I fed them raw right? And people would be like, oh, wow, that's so expensive to feed them raw. And I'm like, all right, well, hang on a second. Go to the butcher and ask them what the cheapest ground beef you can get is, like cheapest grade. And it's, you know, however, three, four bucks a pound, something like that. And then go do the math on that 50 pound bag of dried food that you bought for like $50 and it's dehydrated. Like it's mathematically impossible that it contains what it says it contains, right? Because how are you buying beef for like 25 cents a pound? It just, it it can't work, right? So just because you can buy something at a certain price doesn't mean that's actually what you're getting. But it's, I understand that it's a hard pill to swallow when people are like, well, why should I buy your olive oil for 35 bucks a bottle when I can buy a bottle for nine at the grocery store? And it says it's Italian extra virgin. I'm like, all right, well, let me tell you something. Economically, you can't buy that bottle of Italian extra virgin in Italy from the source for $9. So explain to me what kind of financial trickery is happening that they're selling it to you for essentially for free. Like yeah, they're shipping at it a across. loss. Right. Exactly. Like it's, it's, it's not happening. Grocery stores sell things at losses, but probably not olive oil. Um, so there's, there's a lot of incentive for it to continue and there's not a lot of incentive to enforce it. I actually, um, I know uh, a lawyer here in the Twin Cities who one of the things they specialize in is food fraud. So they sued, um, I think it was Chobani for claiming something about their Greek yogurt that wasn't you know, legit. And they sued him for a ton of money. And she was actually kind of interested in the olive oil thing. Um, because there are big companies involved in this. Like I know that Target sells what they claim is an Italian extra virgin olive oil for a price that I think is probably impossible. Um, but you know, who's going to go after Target? Like, Yeah. Well, and the thing about food labeling is with so much of it, they can kind of say and make whatever claims they want within these bounds and then they have to be proven inaccurate. It's not like they have to prove this is true. It's kind of like they have to wait for someone to call them out and say it's not true. That it's wildly inaccurate. Yeah, right. exactly. And and like I said, there's all those loopholes of, you know, calling it the Mediterranean blend or, or whatever. Um, you know, and the point you brought up nutritionally, like this is kind of where it ties in like with the sourdough. Like we don't know why olive oil is good for you, right? Like you can make claims about antioxidants or phytonutrients or, but at the end of the day, we don't really know what component it is that's in it. But what we know is it has to actually be olive oil for it to have those benefits. Right. 
right? So the studies have like teased out like, well, like legitimately when people eat more olive oil, they tend to be more healthy. Are there other things that are, you know, connected to that lifestyle? Probably. But if you're not eating olive oil, you're not going to get those benefits. I don't, you know, I don't care what, what colorants or flavorants they added to it. It's not the same thing. Um, plus I'm big on flavor. Like one of my biggest, like I'm a huge fan of Dan Barber. He's a chef. Um, for those who aren't familiar, he's a chef out of New York. Um, he owns like a restaurant in New York city. And then he's got this like farm restaurant, um, up in, uh, the blue Hills. And it's his whole thing is like, you get flavor from ingredients that are grown in the best possible way. So he like works directly with farmers to grow stuff without chemicals, without adulteration. And he's actually like working um, with geneticists to like bring back genetic strains that were, you know, cause like most of the produce we buy has now been grown, has been genetically uh, not modified necessarily, but uh, selected for same shape, same size, for it to last longer on the shelf, essentially all of these characteristics other than flavor. Mm-hmm. And Dan's like, no, I want to select for flavor. I don't care if the the shape is odd or if it doesn't stay on the shelf for six weeks without rotting, like all these crazy characteristics. Um, and the thing about olive oil that's good is the flavor is incomparable, especially when you put it in food. Like it's not just when you taste it on its own, it, when you combine it with food, like special things happen and the flavor of your dishes is just elevated. Like I constantly have people over for dinner and Aaron has actually related the same experience and they'll be like, what did you do to, um, these potatoes? I'll be like, I put olive oil and rosemary and salt on them. You know, that's it. Simple. It's just the real, the real flavor of the olive oil. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what it's all about for me. I'm, I'm, Dan's whole thing is driven by flavor and I'm driven by like flavor and connecting people back to like real primal, primal, primary ingredients and the sources that produce those things. I was reading a study, um, actually at this point that's probably older, but they were comparing the composition of produce kind of back to this point and how food has changed and the water content in our produce yeah. that we buy at the grocery store now is crazy crazy high and I think that's why we've lost some flavor and eventually you know the nutrients are not the same that we're getting because food is just so different it's grown for a different purpose I think to just feed the masses at a low price and we're losing touch I think with our food and our food systems for sure and it tends to be grown in nutrient poor soil right like we know that the main ingredient that things need to to basically bring them to market is nitrogen. So we just dump nitrogen into the soil. But what about all that other stuff that we have essentially, we don't even know what components are needed. So we couldn't put them back in, even if we were thinking about that, but we're not, we're just depleting the soil more and more and then dumping nitrogen in it to keep stuff growing um, because we're not doing you know, um, the kind of agriculture that like indigenous populations do where they'll grow many, many, many different things at the same time in the same soil. And those things have like a kind of like a biological harmony that they help each other. We don't do that. We just plant rows of corn and soybeans and then Mm -hmm. rotate those every few years, but dumping nitrogen in the soil all the, all the while, like it's, it's not going to last forever. It's not. I actually just did a podcast with uh, Dr. Zach Bush 
and he was talking about his soil health research that kind of led him in this direction. And what one of the things that blew my mind was we have our chemical farming and we have organic farming. And when he looked at the soil health, he's like the chemical farming was shockingly better soil health than the organic because of the tilling, just ripping apart structure and parts of the soil that needed to be there. So he was kind of advocating for this idea that both are done wrong. And so we need to start thinking about regenerative. I can't even say that right now. Regenerative agriculture and talking exactly what you were mentioning, kind of about what are those called cover crops that kind of put nutrients back in the soil and getting back to the basics of plants and, um, he called it kind of like the microbiome of soil, which I never thought about it that way. But there's so much more going on than just nitrogen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's another one of those examples of something where you introduce, like organic, right? You've introduced this specific legibility of characteristics. Like for it to be organic, it has to either have or not have these specific things. But what about all the other shit that you're forgetting about because those are the things you're optimizing for? And, you know, like regenerative agriculture is looking at the entire system and going, how do we do this without optimizing for one specific thing? Um, are you familiar with Swidden agriculture at all? I'm not. Okay. So a lot of, it's also known as slash and burn. Um, this is what a lot, of, a lot of indigenous cultures do. And of course we like Westerners come in, basically what they do is they clear the the land usually by fire and then they let it regenerate for a few years and then they plant on it with like multiple different crops at the same time and they essentially have like different levels of crops they'll have like things that grow really really low and then they'll have things that grow above them and think and they've got all these like systems that they've been passed down through generations and then of course westerners come in and we're like that's inefficient you should be doing it this way and we come in with scientific agriculture and now their entire ecosystem doesn't work anymore, but congrats, like you can grow, you know, number two corn or whatever. Like it's, it's not good. And I think the sooner we return to, um, like those of us who have the privilege and the ability to do so, the sooner we return to these people that are like doing really good things and doing it right, the better. And that's, that's something that's exciting for me. Like, you know, Luigi's been a family friend for a long time. Like I couldn't even make this up. Like the guy who makes the olive oil, his name is Luigi. I saw that and I was like, this is amazing. Is that who's on the packing tape? No, that's me. I was, I thought that was you. I was like, I just need to get this ordered. So mostly because this packing tape is the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's me on my, on the, on the package. And then Luigi is the one who produces it. And, you know, he's really, truly passionate about it. He, it seems like almost every time I go to Italy and I go to his mill, he's upgraded to the newest, latest and greatest milling machinery that like, you know, uh, is like water cool to keep the temperature really low and uses, um, stainless steel throughout the whole thing. That's actually something I would love to talk about briefly. Yeah, please so do. you could take, um, so everyone knows cold first cold pressed, right? Like that's the thing that you want to see on the bottle is first cold pressed olive oil, extra okay. virgin. Well, maybe once at some point in history, that would have been true, but that's not true anymore because you can take, uh, let's say you take really good olives, right? And then you press them in the old um, mechanical method. What that involves is um, grinding up the olives into a paste and then essentially 
smearing that paste on these mats that are, are they're like fiber mats and then stacking the mats in the press and then smashing it down with tons and like you know, hundreds of tons of force. So there's a bunch of problems with that. In theory, the first cold press would be that first pressing, like the juice that comes out like immediately right away with no other effort. Um, but there's a few problems with that. One is the pressing always generates heat. Like that's just like science 101, right? Mm -hmm. You press something with a ton of force, you're going to generate some heat. So that's a problem. Number two, those mats are not, they're not stainless. They're made out of like, like natural fiber. So now you're introducing like another um, element that's really hard to control into the system. Then what happens is you don't get a great um, yield from the pressing. So they wash the mats with chemicals and get the, the oil residue out of the mats and then use chemicals to like separate that. Now, technically you can't sell that stuff that you've chemically treated as first cold pressing legally at all. But of course that's exactly what happens. So let's say probably roughly around 20 years ago, um, Italians, I, I believe started inventing, um, fully cold stainless steel extraction systems where the olives never have any kind of heat generated there. There's no force or pressure and everything is stainless. And like, that's the kind of system he's been using. But even within that they've, they've iterated on it and improved on the process over and over again. Like at one point they were using, um, thousands of tiny needles to poke into the oil. And then basically the, the, because of the surface tension, the oil would come off on the needle and then drip off. But then there were cleanliness issues with that. Mm -hmm. So then they switched to blades and like, there's just always, um, advancements in the technology that keep that product even better. So you can start out with good olive oils and end up or good olives and end up with a defective olive oil product. If in the extraction process, you introduce mold or bacteria or whatever with a stainless steel process, there's you know, virtually no chance of that. And you end up with a much cleaner product that also lasts longer too. Um, you know, it can last two years if need be. I don't see any point in keeping olive oil for two years, but you know, it, it can last that long. If you're cooking a lot, it probably should not last that long. Oh no. I go through, I go through probably a three quarters a liter a, a month. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not, last, I'm not keeping it for two years. <laughs> you're not being shy with that olive oil. No. So what is, have you ever been to kind of see the process and Luigi and like, I'm assuming he's growing these olives and doing this himself. For sure. Yeah, no, I've been many times. I was just there in February. I was there in the fall. I basically go see him every time I go to Italy. Um, so, and he actually loves people to stop by. They actually have a little B and B at the mill as well. So, you know, if somebody, I just had a friend reach out the other day, they're like, Hey, where is that again? Uh, my aunt and uncle are going to be near there and they want to stop by and see the mill. Is that possible? I'm like, absolutely. It's possible. Which also, by the way, is a red flag. If you were to ask an olive oil producer, like, Oh, can I visit the mill and see where it's made? And they're like, Oh no. You know, like that's totally a red flag. That Something's they're not actually, going on. Yeah. They're not producing their oil. Um, so yeah, I always think it's fun. He grows, um, a lot of olives. He also does buy some olives from local farmers um, because he produces, I think he said about 40,000 liters a year, wow. which sounds like a lot, but is a relatively small production. Um, so obviously has to buy some olives. That's amazing. Yeah. I think that it's pretty crazy just how 
much influence we have as consumers. So I really hope that people pay attention to this. I had friends reach out and be like, where do I find links about all this olive oil fraud? And I read through some of the articles you sent and I was kind of shocked that the most recent one you sent was this year. Yeah. It was a couple months ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's always happening, you know? And so just as a general rule, aside from the shameless self-promotion of like, where can I get good olive oil? Well, you can get it from me um, on a really small scale, but let's say you're not going to get it from me. Like, how can you get good olive oil? The bottom line, and Tom Mueller says the exact same thing is you have to trust where you're getting it from. That's what it comes down to. So do you trust Whole Foods? I I wouldn't personally, if you do, you know, I guess go for it. Um, but it comes down to trusting and knowing the source. And that might be if you're in California or on the West Coast, you might very well be able to visit somewhere that they actually grow olives and produce it. And then you know and, and trust it. Um, if not, you need to find a source you trust. And maybe that's me. Maybe that's someone else. Um, I'm certainly by no means the first person to bring real high quality extra virgin Italian olive oil into the U.S. Not by any means. And also, I honestly, not everyone can come to me because this is such a small thing right now. Um, you know, I regularly sell out like some right now I have maybe a case, um, that will probably be gone by Friday. And then I won't have any more until July. Cause I'll be in Europe for three weeks. Um, but it's a really small scale thing, but ultimately, like I said, same advice as Tom Mueller is you have to trust the person or the source you're getting it from. Otherwise, probably going to get duped and sold to garbage. I feel like this rule should apply to all food though. It totally should. It's not. Yes. You're it, absolutely it right. It really should. Like, and Aaron, um, who's part owner of left bank butchery really yes. opened my eyes into the, the, how meat and animals are cared for in the whole process. And now I really am starting to be mindful of that. And now I think the next step naturally is produce and trying to find local farmers and eat better seasonally and asking them about how they grow their food. Because now we know that makes such a difference in the final process as far as what's in the food and what we're putting into our bodies. You know, I'm really glad you brought up Aaron actually, because I meant to uh, with Left Bank. Like they, they've kind of been pioneers in that. Um, and there's definitely now a movement. Uh, when I was in Philly, there was a butcher shop that was doing a very similar thing. Um, I think that as someone who cares about what they put in their body, meat and protein should probably be your number one thing that you pay attention to where it comes from. Um, and that maybe this is just my opinion, but you know, fat content, fat concentrates nutrients, right? So like per pound, there's more, there's probably more nutrition packed into a pound of meat with fat on it than let's say a pound of vegetables. So if you're only going to care about certain things, or let's say you only have the bandwidth or finances to care about things that are uh, like at kind of the top of that pyramid, meat is probably the one you should care about the most. And you know, I would say olive oil or your cooking oil should be up there as well for the same exact reason. Like you're talking about really, really concentrated nutrition. Um, yeah, it would be amazing if you also bought all your produce from a local farmer. Um, and that would, and to me, like that's the evolution, right? That's how I started is like, I started caring more about my proteins first. And now I care a lot more about my, my produce as well. Um, but yeah, like what they're doing is the exact same thing, connecting people to the producers and also connecting them to things that they wouldn't know about. Like if you walk into left bank and you're like, Hey, you know, 
what should I have? Ross isn't going to be like, uh, here's your filet or your ribeye. Mm-hmm. He's going to say, hey, we've got this other piece that's like not as popular. It's less expensive. And if you cook it like this, it's going to blow your mind. Like that, that stuff is cool and interesting. And you don't get yeah. that when you walk into, you know, a retailer that's just trying to sell as many ribeyes as they can. And I think this is obviously a daunting task. I'm a dietitian and I care about food. Obviously I care about the nutrients and even for me, it can be a little overwhelming. So I'm sure for someone listening, who's just trying to get a handle on basic health concepts, by no means are we saying kind of jump right in. It's a step-by-step process. And I absolutely agree with you that I think animal products should be the first thing you start examining. And hopefully if you're near a city, there's at least, um, you can find a local butcher to build a relationship with and start this conversation and learn more. Um, what left bank does is above and beyond, you know, you can't even call it organic. Like it really is its own form of, I guess how did doc say it? Um, he calls it like, it's like sustainable agriculture on steroids though. Like it really is a regenerative agriculture because even these farms, they tested the water, the water comes in and it leaves cleaner because they've let that ecosystem on this farm do the job. And so they don't need all these chemicals and, and things anymore. I remember him talking about that. And I thought that was such an amazing way to just to, to, to frame it. Like the water literally comes in dirtier and leaves cleaner. Like what, what more could you say about, you know, the health of his farm than that? Um, but yeah, to to reiterate your point, like it's totally unrealistic for someone to just transform overnight from, um, you know, swinging by Chipotle to buying all from local producers and preparing it themselves at home. It's a step-by-step process, Mm -hmm. but when you're ready for the next step, do it. You know, let's say you are cooking the majority of your meals, but you're getting all your stuff from the grocery store. Now it's time for that one next step to get your proteins from somewhere better than a grocery store. And then maybe the next step after that is to get your produce at the farmer's market or whatever, or maybe you never go any further than that. That's okay. Um, I realize the, the inherent privilege in talking about, you know, $35 bottles of olive oil. Um, but if you have the ability and privilege and knowledge to do so, uh, you know, I think it's really worthwhile. I don't think that there are too many more things worthwhile than like food, food quality and breaking bread with people. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that, that, you know, instead of realigning your chakras or whatever, like, have you ever considered (laughs) just having dinner with friends? Cause it's, it's pretty powerful. It is. I love that you brought that up. We food in our culture, we're obsessed over diet and diet makeup and is my plate keto or whatever. And we're forgetting that food for us is really social as humans and it brings us together. And that relationship is important and shouldn't be ignored because you think you need to weigh your protein portion. Yep. All the time. Absolutely. Are you still doing a dinner series with friends or are you going to wait till you get back from Europe? You know, I had to, I wanted to do this pop-up dinner for 40 people and I'm going to have to push it back. Um, the venue that I was going to do it at is brand new and they didn't have their kitchen ready. So when I just started looking at the logistics of like cooking out on a grill and like Mm -hmm. not having a kitchen for, you know, for dishes and everything, it was just for 40 people, it was too daunting. So I'm going to push it back. Um, but I've been having a ton of people over for dinner to my own place. and, And that's something that's just, it's really important to me. Um, you know, I grew up, with not too many formalities, um, but being home for dinner time was like non-negotiable, you know? 
Uh, it's incredibly embarrassing, but my mom had a giant bell that she would like hold out the door and just ring it. And you could hear yes. it in the neighborhood. And my friends would be like, Delanave, the bell's ringing. You better go home. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. But it ingrained it in me. It's, and it's really important to to have dinner with, with friends or family because I think that that's uh, probably one of the best things you could possibly do for your health, truly. Yeah, that was one of my proudest moments when I um, recently moved into my new house is for the first time as an adult, I got to host my family around my dining room table. And that was a really cool feeling. That's so, so cool, right? Yeah, I definitely, you know, encourage people to remember that there's like this human element, even though we obsess over nutrition, uh, it's really actually about connecting with other people and experiencing that for sure. For sure. And it doesn't have to be hard. Cook a protein, throw some olive oil on top of some vegetables, roast them in the oven and make a salad. That's it. It doesn't have to be like a seven course thing. Yeah. And you brought up kind of that we are coming from, you know, obviously this is like a privilege to be able to buy these foods and I budget out. I'm like a normal human being, um, balling on a budget over here at Softly. <laughs> and I, spend the majority of like my monthly income on food because it's something I've prioritized because I realize my goals and my values, that's what I need to be spending my money on. So I hate when people will say, oh, I really don't have the money, you know, to try and buy better quality food, but you're going to go to the bar and spend 50 to a hundred dollars going all out one night. So I think it's just, you know, think about your life and if there is a way that you can prioritize higher food quality in your budget and, and really think about what you want and how that aligns. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. I mean, listen, I, I fully recognize that there are people who truly cannot, they truly cannot afford to eat. Um, but I would just wager that the people that are listening have a little bit more flexibility. The the people that are listening to us, they probably have a little more flexibility and it, and is maybe more of a question of priorities. Like you said, like if you're spending any money at a bar, any, money at bars, you have more money for food quality. Like you just do, <laughs> you know, like that is truly, truly wasted money. And it's, you know, I find myself drinking and going out less and less just cause it is not, it is just not worth it. Um, there's so many other things I could do with that. I need to do a whole another podcast on alcohol consumption and just actually what it does to your body, how it affects performance because have it's you not really done crazy. That? I haven't. I've never done a full podcast on alcohol and performance. You should absolutely do that because I that's, should. yeah, that's, that's one of those. Anytime I have a client who's like, Oh, I'm not losing, losing fat. I can't figure out why I'm like, Oh, you still drink. Yeah. Okay. I mean, listen, it's possible to do it, right? Like you can drink in moderation and change your body type. It is harder. I've, I have yet to see, um, a, a data point to the contrary that it isn't harder. Like you cut that alcohol out, you change your metabolic processes, you drop your calories down, you change your habits. It just gets easier. Yeah, that's awesome. I might have to chat with you about bringing in that, um, other side the training side and just how that affects alcohol and metabolism because it's pretty wild. And if you ask anyone who's achieving things athletically, human performance wise, or the type of active lifestyle they live, like 90% of the time, they rarely drink. Yeah. And they're it's, choosing to prioritize things like high quality nutrition. It's really hard to reconcile high performance and alcohol. It just is like, there might be room in there for, uh, as almost like a recovery protocol for, you know, a drink, 
um, a few times a week, but any more than that, it's really hard to reconcile those things. Um, yeah. It is. Well, I want to bring it back. Where can people find out more about you, what you're doing and all that good stuff? Yeah. So I've got just one page for this. It's just delanave.com slash olive dash oil. Um, I'm sure you can include a, a link in the show notes I will. or something. I will put that in um, the show notes. You have a really interesting story up on your website too. I went and read it. Like you kind of told a brief yeah. of the story. Yeah, for sure. This is kind of the background. And here's the deal. Like um, like right now I have a few more bottles. I don't, this probably won't go up for a little while. So by the time this goes up, I will more than likely not be shipping and I'll be sold out. Um, there's an email sign up on there. Just put in your email address. And then what I do is I just let people know like, Hey, I'm doing a pre-order. Let me know if you want a bottle. And then I order a bunch from Luigi. And then sometimes I have some left over, and then I'll send out an email about that. Um, it's kind of one of those situations where the quantity is is truly like not artificially, it's truly limited. I can only bring in so much at a time. Um, and then when it's gone, it's gone. So just go to that website. If there's none available, just sign up for the email list and I'll, I'll let you know when uh, I've got some. Nice. And if you all take anything away from this, it is the food quality matters and to try and be mindful and prioritize high quality nutrition and food and, and make sure you really trust those sources like you mentioned. Yep, absolutely. And if you're cooking with olive oil, for God's sake, just get some good olive oil. It makes such a big difference. <laughs> just do it. You don't need <laughs> to soak your vegetables in it. I'm in the meal plan on the app. I tell them how much they need and it's not a ton. Less yeah. is more, especially if it's the real stuff with flavor. I also just want to take a jab at like canola and vegetable oils and stuff like that. Like, do please it. Don't take a jab. Don't, don't use that shit. Like, honestly, it's why garbage. do you feel like, that way? Oh, it's, it's it. a waste product. Like it's literally a, a product that the industry couldn't figure out what else to do with. And so they, they pawned it off on consumers as this better thing. Like, Oh, vegetables, it must be good. It must be healthy. It's totally a waste product. Um, I don't even want to start talking about rapeseed or canola oil, um, any kind of canola, vegetable oil, um, even peanut oil. Like sometimes I'll use peanut oil for frying, but I got to tell you, once you realize what rancid oil smells like, as soon as you fry with like peanut oil and you smell that smell of, of rancid or essentially oxidized polyunsaturated fatty acids, you, you can't like, you can't tolerate it anymore. And that, that, smell is unmistakable. And what that smell is, is literally oxidized polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is not a good thing for the body. No, it's not. Um, that is not what you want. Um, we can debate whether or not you want polyunsaturated fatty acids at all. Like that, that's sort of a debatable topic, but what you don't want are oxidized ones. Um, you know, just for, for context, like oxidized, uh, polyunsaturated fatty acid is what you can use to varnish furniture. Like that's what oh, linseed oil is. It hardens into a varnish. Uh, so yeah, fuck all those oils. <laughs> Coconut oil's good. Well, I was going to um, say, what do you bake with? Um, like if I'm doing like a cake or something. Yeah. Like a lot of recipes like brownies and things will call for vegetable oil. You know, a lot of times I'll use coconut oil and brownies because that coconut flavor is not, it goes well with chocolate, obviously. Um, yeah, that's what I've been doing recently too. Yeah. The other thing is you can use light olive oil, which is not something I would use in, in normal cooking. But if you truly want something that has like almost no flavor at all, 
you can use light olive oil and it basically has no flavor. It is more of a refined product, but I'd rather have refined um, light olive oil than vegetable or canola oil um, any day. Uh, coconut oil, yeah. I don't love the flavor of in everything. Like um, like eggs scrambled in coconut oil, I'm not down with. I don't yeah. like that flavor, you know? Um, and there are some things like mayo mayo with olive oil is disgusting to me like i don't really it is i can't get down with it the consistency doesn't work no i don't love mayo to begin with but that there are a few things that i'll make an exception for um but for the most part it's olive oil all day that's interesting and i think um when it comes to a lot of the baking stuff um i do the melted coconut oil yeah um I've got, I definitely have vegetable in my pantry. I'm not going to lie. I need to rethink that. There is a lot of research that's still debated, but basically about how, how all these refined oils will increase your inflammatory markers and possibly alter gut health, you know, that lining, those tight junctions. So that's not great if there's any indicator that maybe these things, po- you know, possibly could have an effect on the body. So I also think nutrition research is so far behind the curve because at the end of the day, they're trying to do things like supposedly cure cancer and diabetes, and they care a lot less about if refined oils is what it's doing to the lining of your gut. You for sure, and like it's a huge industry, right? Like how much of that stuff gets sold, and and how much? And this is totally like a rabbit hole, but how much? Uh, how many products have been made that for a long time were marketed as like? you know, like wonder bread, like this stuff is, is healthier and better. It's an improvement on the old way of doing things. And then like come to find out it's actually making people super fucking sick. Cause they didn't know that they were missing like some massive, like major component in it. Um, like early versions of commercial bread were making people super sick. Um, we now know that margarine was not like the better butter. It's actually fucking toxic waste. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of products like that. And I'm not a, I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means. I just recognize the profit potential in convincing people that something that costs industry less, but makes the same amount of money is better. You know, butter is very expensive. Butter is, is concentrated milk and milk isn't cheap. So if you can convince someone that this shitty oil that costs almost nothing to produce is better than butter and sell it to them for, I don't know what margarine costs. Like, what is it? Probably two thirds the price of butter. You know, like probably almost, or less. Yeah, yeah, almost, but not as much. You're going to get a lot of people that are going to take you up on it. Um, and I think as a consumer, you just have to be really like discerning and almost like distrusting and be like, okay, why is this being advertised as better? Why? What motive do they have to tell me it's better? Um, like my motives to tell you that olive oil is better is because it fucking tastes better. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's a genuine product that Italians have been using for uh, millennia. Uh, convince me that this thing that you invented in a lab 10 years ago is better. Sometimes it's true. Like, I don't know, rayon is a pretty cool fabric, but things we consume, not so sure. Yeah. And I think I harp on probably every episode at some point that processed food is what needs to be limited in general. And you brought up a great point. And for those who have not listened to that first podcast that you and I had ever done together was, um, the bread podcast. It was on the die living episodes. I highly recommend you go back because that's another fascinating story about how, you know, wonder bread and trying to cook bread. And, and if you'll notice now that so many processed foods, they're trying to add and supplement these nutrients back in because they've taken it out as a result of trying to process it so quickly. 
or, you know, making us deficient. And a lot of it has to do with grains for sure. Pastas and cereals and breads, which causes a whole another slew of issues, quite frankly. When right. you start and adding my all this stuff. Is, cool. You're putting things back in. What don't you know to put back in? Mm-hmm. Because the science hasn't, you know, teased out that variable or whatever. And it's still and, debatable that if, when it's naturally occurring in a food versus it's being put back in as an additive, how is the sure. body processing and recognizing that? Is it actually working together to do what it was intended to do as a nutrient as a complete food? Sure. Like what are those multi-factor, multifactorial interactions that we haven't determined all the different parts of? Um, you know, and like to go back really briefly to your question about baking, like let's remember too that brownies in a box are a processed convenience food that you add vegetable oil to. There's always been a way to make brownies without, you know, vegetable oil, like mm-hmm. butter, lard, like there are traditional recipes. Are they more work? Yeah, of course they are. They taste better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I'll tell you what, you make an apple pie with with butter and lard, it's a game changer compared to something you make with vegetable oil. Absolutely. So there's always a more traditional way to do it. And traditional isn't always better, but when it comes to things like food, usually it is. I love it. I need to, I need to eat some of your bread sometime soon too. I feel like I I need to, I need to have the bread with the olive oil for the full experience. You know, my trips out there are always too damn short because the last time I just came out, I was going to bring some of my starter and we were going to bake bread. And then I looked at like the, the days that we had and I'm like, there's just no way. So the next time I come out, I'm going to like make sure I stay an extra day and I'm going to bring starter and we're going to make bread. That'd be awesome. Right Thank on. you so much for tell, taking tell the time. Aaron to put an oven in that kitchen there. I know. So, well, that's a whole uh, like legal fire code issue i wish we had a real a real oven we now have a freezer full of meat from the hunt though <laughs> oh dope let me get so some you that. need to get that for sure I, man that was sweet i still have videos and photos i should send you from when you smoked that pig yeah you need to send those that was that was my first hunt that was awesome you guys were yeah. so kind to me i always joke that i'm like the awkward little sister of softly <laughs> I don't know about that. It was, it was pretty cool. You did good. It was fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat. I love it. You're a really yeah. interesting guy and I'm sure we will do this again and we'll have to think of some other topics. Thanks, Brooke. It's always fun to talk to you. All right. See ya.